Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at zencare.org. As some of you may know, uh, some of you might have seen me or we may have interacted before. My name is Christina Moon and I live in Honolulu at Daihonsan Chozenji at the back of Kalihi Valley. Um, I would show you the view out the window, but it's very rainy in the back of the valley today. And let me just do a quick sound check. Can you give me a thumbs up if you can hear me all right? Thank you. Great. So um, given that I'm so far away, it was a challenge to think of um, what to speak to you about today. And so um, I decided to sort of go to an old standby. A couple of months ago, Kyoshin and Chodo, um, sorry, Koshin and Chodo invited me to be a speaker guest faculty as part of their contemplative medicine fellowship. And I received the assignment of speaking about the first and second noble truths. And then later on through my Substack newsletter, I fleshed it out and did a sort of like my interpretation, my um, expounding on all four of the noble truths. And so I thought um, I might share that with you today because it's such a valuable doctrine one that requires us going back to over and over again. And I hope this isn't too repetitive with anything you've been doing recently. My repetition is good. <laughs> so um, as I was saying, uh, I'm here at Chozenji, which is a Rinzai Zen temple. And we're also a, a martial arts dojo. And um, generally we don't, sort of open with the Four Noble Truths. We don't open with concepts. Part of that comes from our martial arts and samurai lineage. Our approach could be described as cultural because we are, um, while we're having people sit zazen, we're also really emphasizing just, can you pay attention to and match sort of the behavior and the norms and the values being expressed around you? Can you um, just pay attention enough to see where the cushions go, how people sort of um, carry themselves and just see if you can leave your ego at the door and just match. And then of course, we also train in the fine arts and martial arts, which one could describe as, as cultural practices as well. But, but really our um, approach is best described as sort of body first, really physical. And we spend a lot of time teaching people, I think as you do, how to sit, how to breathe, and how to sort of properly use their bodies to gain the greatest insight into the human condition. And while we do incorporate textual study, it generally comes later. The first time you might actually hear a Taisho or a Dharma talk like this 
might be when you're doing session a years or more into your Zen training, um, or it might be when you finally get invited to join a study class, for example, like the one on Sunzu's Art of War that we're just wrapping up right now, or maybe on one of our foundational texts like the Furochi Shimuroku. But our preference is really that people um, train first and then use the sutras, the textual study and the concepts to really just validate what they've already begun to understand, what they've already experienced through their own bodies and through their own lived experience. Knowing that something like the Four Noble Truths is foundational, it is perhaps one of the few things that all of the forms of Buddhism around the world, which are so diverse in their shape, it's one of the few things that they really sort of like hold in common. Um, it's really worth going back to over and over again. And yet, every time I go back to it, I discover some new dimension. And that's just cemented a realization that it may take a whole lifetime before I fully, fully understand it. All of that being said, I really do like the Four Noble Truths. One of the reasons that I really like them is I find that they're incredibly straightforward. And it might depend a little bit on the translation and the way you look at it. But for me, it's so straightforward that it's almost scientific. And I always point to the name to start. So the, a noble truth. And another place that we see this word noble come up is actually in science, in the periodic table, describing certain stable and inert gases called noble gases. And that's for me, when I look at it, I when I read that definition of a noble gas, I was like, oh, that's what that that's why they use that word noble truth. If you look in a Western dictionary, the word noble is generally defined as like grace, morality, or I found distinguished by rank or title, which I think you could like look at the Four Noble Truths that way. But for me, it's much more useful if I look at it in terms of it cannot be distilled any further, it cannot be deconstructed to anything else. This is the foundation of our worldview, a Buddhist understanding of how the world, human experience, and the universe work. Okay. So you'll have to bear with me because I do have my own um, sort of translation or interpretation of the Four Noble Truths, sort of, which I do in an effort to just help find clarity for people. But here's how I like to write them out. The first Noble Truth is that suffering is a feature of human existence due to the impermanence of all phenomena and the tendency of our five bodily senses to clinging. The second noble truth is that suffering is caused by craving or attachment. Third, that suffering ceases when we're free from craving. And four, that the noble, the eightfold noble path is the way to cease suffering. Birth is suffering, the Buddha said. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. In other words, to exist as a fully formed human being is to encounter suffering in some form. But what exactly is suffering? 
at its core, according to the first noble truth, suffering comes from the desire for things to be different. And what allows this desire to exist is the intersection of two universal and quintessentially human realities. One is that this isn't just a human reality, it's a universal reality. It's that all things are impermanent, things are always changing. But then the human aspect, the way we experience this terrain of the universe is that our five senses, sight, sound, taste, and smell, and touch, have this tendency to cling to what we experience as pleasant. So whether we see, hear, smell, taste, or touch something pleasing, we tend to want a little bit more of it. And when we encounter something displeasing, we want less of it. From there, human beings have the tendency to build things up with emotions, with thoughts, with actions. And so even this relatively straightforward experience of pleasant versus unpleasant and a little bit of clinging can mushroom into something much, much bigger. And soon we're full on chasing after the experiences we want more of and running away from the things we want less of. I think that challenge that a lot of people in the West have with the Four Noble Truths, and this part in particular, is that we live in a more or less Judeo-Christian society, and which views suffering in really moral terms, sort of that um, framework of retributive justice is very, very strong. So essentially suffering happens when we do bad things or when we lack faith in God, but in Buddhism, suffering's truly agnostic and it's and this particular definition of suffering even doesn't have the weight that um the word in english suffering generally has for us which tends to be emotional and can feel extreme but this is like trying to get at the maybe even like the smallest possible particle that could be recognized as suffering and find trying to find what the universal truth is universal characteristics that that experience are that are true at that smallest instance all the way up to the most extreme. Suffering is so common that if human, I like to say that if human existence were an app, it would be a feature, not a bug. And the presence of suffering really isn't a sign that we're malfunctioning or doing anything wrong. It's actually just a hallmark of our human experience. As far as we can tell, human beings seem to be the only animals that do suffer in this definition of it. Other creatures experience pain, but suffering in this Buddhist definition is like a higher order trait that requires a certain level of intellect and self-awareness or essentially an ego. And the ego is one of the most significant accomplishments in many respects of human evolution. We're able to divide the world in a way that it seems no other beings can. Everything we perceive, we divide into dualistic relationships, me and not me, inside, out, good, bad, past and future. And as a result, we're able to craft complex language and thinking to describe not just the things we observe, but far more complex constructs, even the things that haven't happened yet. This translates into the ability to tell stories, to make plans, and all of that 
has added added up to making us vastly superior in hunting, building, and war than any other creature. But the same achievement creates suffering. When the basic desire for things to be different, to go after the things that are pleasing, to not experience the things that are displeasing, metastasizes into what the historical Buddha called tanha, or craving. Literally, the word tanha means thirst. And you can experience, I love that definition because you can imagine it, you can experience it. Thirst, craving doesn't quite cut it. Craving feels like mental, conceptual. Thirst feels physical, physiological. And often our craving takes on that intensity of it's not just something I would like very much. It feels like something I need. And then when tanha or craving arises, it leads to the things that really characterize our suffering, greed and aversion. So using a common situation in medicine, one of the contemplative medicine students asked me when, say, concern about a loved one's test results turns into suffering. Essentially, I said it's very reasonable and sort of a well-balanced in a Buddhist sense for someone to feel concern about the outcome of an important lab. But when we start to spin out our stomach in knots, envisioning future scenarios, worrying about what could happen, and so consumed that we can't fulfill our responsibilities right in front of us, then that's very clearly suffering. It's everything that we're adding to the situation. And similarly, it's possible to find something very pleasing and also not become greedy for more of it. So for example, we can enjoy seeing our loved ones without having to see them all the time and without feeling immobilized by missing them when they're not around. When they've passed away, as all the people we love inevitably will, we can feel their absence and feel sadness. We can even grieve for them but without becoming stuck in our grief, without ruminating on our regrets or wishing we'd done things differently. It is possible instead to keep moving and according with the constant moment to moment changes happening all around us, which are a result of the fact that all phenomena are impermanent. The third and fourth noble truths go on to say that even though suffering is natural, as I've said, in many ways inevitable, actually there is a way to end it. And the catch though, in my interpretation, <laughs> is that in order to free ourselves from suffering, we first have to suffer. It's only through suffering, or the, the order of operations is that it's only through suffering that we can actually know it well enough to transcend it. So that's really the point of the Four Noble Truths. First, they define suffering and where it comes from. Then with that understanding established, they identify that it's possible to transcend it. And finally, this is the best part, they tell you the method by which to do so. So this is really, um, in some ways, not unique to Buddhism. This flavor of understanding that suffering can be transcended and that 
there's something to learn from suffering. The psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, didn't use these exact words of transcending suffering, but he explored the same potential in humans to do more than just suffer. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he describes fellow prisoners at Auschwitz and other Nazi extermination camps who are able to maintain a sense of, his words, inner liberty, despite their external circumstances. He even described them as deepening spiritually. And what's most remarkable is that he describes this deepening as not coming about in spite of, but because of the external circumstances that they were experiencing. If there is meaning in life at all, he wrote, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is an eradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. He also quotes the Russian novelist Dostoevsky, who wrote of wanting to be worthy of his sufferings. Fully experiencing suffering and then turning our suffering into opportunities to study and understand it makes it possible to interrupt the mechanism that takes clinging, elevates it to craving. That's the third noble truth in a nutshell, which states that by freeing ourselves from craving, suffering also ceases. And then the fourth noble truth identifies the method by which to end craving and suffering, which is the noble eightfold path. The noble eightfold path, I think you already know, is one of those quintessential Buddhist lists, long, technical, conceptual. And um, I'm I'm kind of grateful to be in Zen where we don't do those so much. <laughs> we tend to look at the essence. And I think that's particularly true in uh, Ding Zai Zen where I found myself. So uh, a slight historical digression. So the Japanese um, Zen philosopher D.T. Suzuki, he described the transit of Buddhism from India to Japan through the progressive evolution of a core principle. And originating in India, Buddhists endeavored to understand the nature of the individual mind and through that come to understand a universal or transcendent mind, like capital M mind, which is also known as the universe. And, and then he summed up this Indian approach to Buddhism through a core principle that he said was mind only, capital M, capital O, mind only. Then when Buddhism was transmitted to China, it encountered Taoism, Confucianism, and a very literary intellectual tradition. And Suzuki describes this essential characteristic of mind only making a sort of dialectical flip into no mind. And then by the time Buddhism, and in particular Zen, took root in medieval Japan around the sixth century, people started asking what the utilization or the utility of this no mind was. And what emerged was the principle of the immovable mind. In the context of the Four Noble Truths, coming back, the immovable mind is what can free us from craving and suffering. 
because it's a kind of consciousness that doesn't stop or get stuck on anything. Immovable doesn't mean immobile. In fact, what makes the mind immovable is actually that it doesn't stop. Whatever is pleasant or unpleasant is experienced fully, and even clinging to what's pleasant is experienced fully, but because the immovable mind continues to roll with all of the moment-to-moment changes that make up our impermanent existence, the mind doesn't stop long enough for craving to develop. The analogy or metaphor can be like a rolling stone that gathers no moss. Another analogy or metaphor comes from the Zen master Hakuin, who talked about a ball on a fast moving stream. So rolling and turning whenever it encounters an obstacle, the ball never stops moving. In contrast, a branch or a piece of paper on that same stream gets stuck and plastered onto a rock and then gets pummeled by the rushing waters. So what we're doing through our Zen training is trying to cultivate this immovable mind through Zazen, through taking the experience and the principles of breath, posture, and concentration from Zazen, this Zazen mind into our everyday activities, we're cultivating this immovable mind, this degree of presence and awareness, so that no matter what comes at us, we're according with the myriad changes of the universe. It feels important to mention or make note of right now, it feels like people are experiencing a very particular flavor of suffering based on all of the news that we're hearing in global politics and in wars happening around the world. And this definition of suffering and this this conversation about suffering in a very sort of like cold and scientific way may feel a little bit like an affront to the very real emotions that people are experiencing right now. But I draw a lot of inspiration from Viktor Frankl, from someone who's lived through circumstances so much more challenging deeply heartbreaking than anything I've ever lived through. And I I trust him. And I trust that he's saying that even the most extreme of human experiences can be opportunities to deepen ourselves spiritually, to transcend the limitations that we impose on ourselves. That narrative that says we can't be more compassionate, we can't do more, That's too much. He's really an inspiration to be able to look much, much bigger and look much, much farther at what the human condition, the human being is capable of. And I think that's the real beauty in taking this particular approach to suffering, the Buddhist approach, to look at it as coolly as nuanced and as um, at the smallest, most granular level that we can to try to find the truths embedded in that experience throughout. 
So the big caveat too is for me anyway, this is where I'm at right now with the Four Noble Truths. And um, every time I come back to it, and I usually have the occasion every couple of years to come back to the Four Noble Truths, it gains more and more dimension. So I don't know where it lands for you guys. It may, maybe it seems very rudimentary. Um, maybe there's some aspect that feels interesting and illuminating, but whatever you're, wherever you are on the path, I hope that you'll continue to come back to it over and over again, because this is such a fundamental aspect of our whole community, our whole Sangha as Buddhists, and one that deserves returning to again and again. Thank you so much, everyone. My, um, the founder of Chozenji, Tanoi Tenshin Roshi, he said something that I want to share with you um, on September 11th. September 11th, you know, we're six hours behind the East Coast. And so it was um, a little bit, it was early morning here, but it was quite a bit after the events had happened in New York and Washington. Um, but he called a bunch of people up to the dojo and we had this peace bell that was a gift from the city of Kyoto to the city of Honolulu after World War II. And he had everyone line up and ring this bell, sending the vibration of peace out into the world. Even though we're just this little tiny temple on the back of a valley in Hawaii, so far away from all everything that was happening. And he talked about the importance of putting that vibration, one's vibration out into the world, whether it's the vibration of peace or the vibration of training. And then he said to everyone, train hard. Your spirit counts. And I'll just share that with you today. Train hard. Your spirit counts. Thank you.